would like to welcome you to Compassion, a Kind Souls Foundation podcast, where we'll seek to redirect the workers' compensation industry towards empathy, kindness, and compassion. Compassion is a place where we'll have meaningful conversations celebrating kind souls in the workers' compensation industry, and also listen to those who've been impacted by a workers' compensation injury. Workers' compensation comes from a place of compassion. Compassion for those who are going through arguably the most difficult time in their lives. Compassion will be a space to celebrate the good work we do, but also to shine a light on what we can do better. My name is Sean Dean, the host of Compassion, a Kind Souls Foundation podcast, where we're passionate about workers' comp. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Compassion, the Kind Souls Foundation podcast. And I am so incredibly lucky and blessed to be a part of Kind Souls Foundation as an ambassador. And we talked with the board and decided we wanted to do a podcast to celebrate all of the kind souls in the workers' compensation space. And we went back and forth quite a bit on determining who the best first guest would be. And it took us about 24 seconds to determine Dr. Claire Musselman should be the first guest. Dr. Claire is such an amazing person and one of my favorite people in the industry and has done so much to redirect us towards compassion and a people-centric model of, of thinking about what we do and is just a complete rock star. And I'm I'm so very grateful to you, Dr. Claire, for joining us today on the very first Compassion Kind Souls Foundation podcast. So thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor and a pr- it's been an honor and a privilege to be a part of the work comp industry. Even more so, I could not feel more compassion not to be cheesy with the title. I feel like I owe I'm starting to own the cheesiness the older my daughter gets. She's 15, she's a freshman in high school. So like when you and I were chatting before when you're like what's the sitch? Let me tell you. I'm yeah. like, "Oh yeah, we're such parents, man." It yeah. is there's just certain things. So uh, the compassion in the work comp space is just something that absolutely fuels my fire and is why I cannot leave. I feel like we've got so much more work to do, but Kind Souls is really changing the trajectory of what we do from the mental and well-being landscape of people who have been displaced from work. Yep. And that is something that is such a huge huge gap as we look at where does workers' compensation start stop or even personal health insurance stop. And where do we need to meet the mental health needs, the emotional well-being of the people who are actually going through these circumstances? It's been awesome. How awesome did, to get the word out. How did you come to workers' compensation? I know we've talked before about this, but I want for the you know one listener who doesn't know who you are, let us know how you came to this industry. And second part of that, like what's kept you here? Sure. So in kindergarten, our teacher asked us to draw a picture of what we wanted to be when we grew up. I'm just kidding. That is not what happened at all. Uh, Very sincerely, I went to the University of Iowa and thought I was going to be an attorney. I wanted to be a family law attorney. I'm adopted. I've got a pretty strong passion for helping kids in foster care. I'm a CASA. Like, There's a lot that goes in from that landscape. I went and toured Europe after I got out of college and came back bombed my LSAT. It happened to be the same weekend as Iowa homecoming and priorities, you know, when you're 19 and 20 are a little different than what they are 
later in life. So I will, and University of Iowa had a very solid reputation for being a very entertainment-based school. We'll go with that. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> so bomb the LSAT, was working in a bar deciding that I was like, what was my next step? Where do I want to go? And one of my doubles tennis partner growing up, her name is Lauren Sheldrip. She's amazing, fantastic woman. We've been, we were doubles partners from like age three on in tennis and her dad comes in and is like, what are you doing here? And I said, I don't know. I bombed the LSAT. I just got back from Europe. I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. And he said, why don't you come work at my law firm? And he did workers' compensation defense. There you Chris go. Sheldrip, he works at Corridor Law. Still fantastic. But he brought me in and I have not been able to leave. It was an awesome experience working at that law firm, not only to get, we specialized in trucking insurance defense at that point, but we also had a Spanish-speaking injured worker-focused group that also resided in that practice. And I had lived in Spain and Mexico at that point. And so I could speak Spanish. I still can somewhat. I can better read and understand what other people are saying. But so help me, Duolingo is going to get me back into my Spanish. (laughs) Gamification, it's a real thing. But it really helped me understand what injured human beings were feeling. And this is where a lot of my background and how I was raised and whatever, all that stuff and the psychosocial issues that create us and who we are and our you know, nature versus nurture really helped me understand that there's a lot of power in what you can do from whatever seat you sit in in workers' compensation. And so then I moved into claims and then, you know, we're off to the races. Yeah. And ever since then, it's always been a really big focal point for me to understand like what's actually going on with the people on the other end. I had a work comp injury when I was 16, a door handle popped through my leg when I was working at a tropical smoothie in Cedar Rapids, which was awful and terrifying. I missed my artery like by a millimeter. I never knew that. Yeah, I was pretty radical, but my dad had amazing health insurance and I didn't think twice about the fact that it happened at work. I was wearing, I remember this vividly, I had my University of Iowa gray t-shirt on that we had gotten at, you know, our college visit and these old Navy white terry cloth shorts, you know, because this is the early 2000s and that's what we wore a lot. And when it popped through my leg, you know, one thing leads to another and there's blood all over these white terry cloth shorts. And so when I came back to my employer, I went, got stitched up, came back. I was like, I just really want my old Navy shorts. And they were like $6. (laughs) I mean, it was nothing, you know, it's nothing that's like substantial. But when we think about it, like at my point of life at 16, my biggest primary concern is I really wiped these shorts. I want another pair. Yeah. Can we fix them? The other irony of this injury is that it came from the fire department had been in the day before putting in the store handle. It had to be like 18 inches like I think below the door handle and like where it needed to be was very strategically placed. So the irony of how it closed on my leg the day after we spent this time putting it in was a little interesting. And it's just always, it's funny to see the ripple effect of things that we know are trying to mitigate certain risks that we don't necessarily understand the ripple effect that they're going to have. Yeah. But I have a gnarly scar on my leg which is kind of crazy, but that was my first experience with workers' compensation. That's great. And at the time you weren't thinking yeah. that only, no lost time, like there's like probably no. some sort of code violation with respect to how it was installed. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Just craziness on this, but nope, just needed those $6 terry cloth shorts that I did not get replaced because workers' compensation does not cover clothing. Correct. I hope, I hope you were able to, <laughs> I hope out of pocket they were able to reimburse you though. But I remember feeling like a huge self 
like there was a lot of self-reflection and I've been talking about this a lot lately. Like we're on the dawn of a new semester. I'm a professor at Drake university and we're talking a lot about leadership and self-development and we go into this accountability component. And I think this exists really heavily in the workers' compensation space. So I designed a master of science and leadership program with this wonderful woman named Molly Shepard. It's going to debut at Drake this fall. And we've been trying to understand how humans, we understand ourselves, we understand how we relate to others and then how we participate in an organization. But what I see a lot of is a shift in blame versus accountability. And I go back to that with this first work comp injury. I literally like the door blew. It was a windy day and the door blew closing on my leg. Well, I was going outside to go get something from my car. So it's technically not work related that I'm going outside. I had to go to a wedding that weekend and wanted to show one of my friends my dress. Okay. Totally unrelated. But my big accountability was, oh my gosh, I've now been injured. I need to get my leg fixed. Can somebody come cover for me so I can go get my leg sewn up? And then I couldn't get a hold of my parents. Again, here comes tennis again. My doubles partner at that point, her mom came and picked me up and took me to the ER. Just, you know, crazy situations. Yay for tennis. It's always a streamline in my life. It kind of makes me laugh. But my accountability was then how quickly can I get back to work? And then my apologies to the owner of the company. Like, I'm so sorry that I, that this happened. I don't know. I was just trying to slide out the door. Like, and I took the accountability of what should I have done differently? And I think there's an interesting shift when we look at workers' compensation, when we look at injury and injury prevention, and we look at who is taking accountability where. And this also expands into leadership as a whole with where do the accountability pieces lie? And one of the things that I'm focusing on this semester, and I think in educating all parties, I speak a lot to employers these days versus claims professionals, is to where does the accountability lie within people? And how do we take give people the opportunity to start looking at themselves first to actively seek out resources that are provided to them? So if we look at this on the employer standpoint, we could talk about personal health insurance. All of us have personal health insurance if we're employed. How much do we take advantage of what we are offered? So I'll use vision benefits. I got an email from Target probably every day that's like, hey, we want to see you use your eye insurance benefits before vision insurance benefits before the end of the year. And I never took advantage of it. But that's on me. Like, that's my accountability for not doing that. And I think that there's a lot of those type of scenarios. Gym membership exist. reimbursement, like all sorts of yes. stuff for us there's to better our lives. I, admittedly, I, I don't take advantage of half of that stuff that I'm offered. I just, no, and I, I, don't I don't either. Yeah. That's on so me. So how do we start getting, yeah, but we can now say that, like, you know that, I know that we've got our kids, like we should probably be doing more. Okay. I acknowledge that. I'm going to, I'm going to use my vision benefits this year, Sean, I'm committing to you right now. I'm going to do that. But I think that this is what, here's where I'm wrapping this all into with like what we do with kind souls and what we do with our employer elements. There was a case last month out of Hawaii where a couple of people and last month being December of 2023, we saw um, a nurse was murdered in front of a couple employees by a patient. The healthcare system that she works, the woman worked for is not covering the emotional PTSD, mental trauma of the employees that saw her killed because they're saying that that there was no physical injury to result in the mental injury, et cetera. So this is where I think we've got a big opportunity in the workers' compensation space and in the benefit space to look at, okay, when situations arise like this, 
where does the gap lie? What do we offer as an employer to make sure that our employees are taken care of? And then where if workers' compensation isn't going to cover that, who's covering the gap? Because those people didn't choose to come watch this. It's not like they signed up to go to a horror movie. You know, there's elements with this. And I really want to call to action. I'm going to write this up. I hope this takes some traction of at what point do we start looking at things from a legislative lens and taking care of people and looking at the emotional, the mental, the well-being of the of the mind and looking at what goes on in our brain activity, et cetera, after being watching an injury, having PTSD, whatever that might look like. Do how do we start to either get that into legislation since workers' compensation is state specific? And or how do we start getting employers to be able to better communicate the benefits they offer and to have it willingly ready to go at the time of an unforeseen circumstance? Or how do we get both? Or, because I think Kind Souls does a good job right yeah. now of filling the gap. So we need to get Kind Souls out there more. We need some legislation changes and we need more employer buy-in. So this has become my new focal point. The past year it. and a half, I've been studying a lot. My doctorate is focused on human behavior and human behavior in organizations. And so I've been down a rabbit hole of neuroplasticity, brain behavior, neurology, you name it. I was working with a uh, one of the professors from our College of Pharmacy at Drake yesterday, and she's inviting me to come audit some of her classes on pharmacology and what happens to the brain. And if you are a black person versus a white person versus a woman versus a man, how those have physiological differences in the drug interactions within your body and what it does to your brain. So this is just amazing, phenomenal stuff we've known about for decades, but being able to put that into application and then also to be able to make it consumable for other people like adjusters, employers choosing benefit plans, human resource professionals, and people who are in the recovery process or someone that is taking one of these medications or whatever it is, being able to understand how it is physiologically impacting your body. You know, we talk about fraud and work comp all the time. And again, I know I'm not saying I don't agree that it's there. I know we've got malingering. I know we've got all this stuff, but I think that there are also other components that play into that from a physiological standpoint. For example, if you're off of work and I, as the adjuster, forget to pay you, because I'm busy, I've got other stuff going on, or I forgot to set the diary, you are going to get stressed out. The stress is going to release your blood pressure. It's going to release cortisol into your body. Um, your heart rate's going to increase. Your muscles are going to tighten. You're going to get apprehensive because you don't know when your next check is coming. Well, the cortisol dump, the increase in blood pressure, the increase in heart rate, the tightening of muscles, all of that creates massive amounts of inflammation in your body and your tissue cannot heal when it's inflamed. So your healing process is going to be slowed as a result of that. And a lot of times it's easier for us as outsiders who are not the absolute participant in that claim to say, well, that person's malingering. Okay, very, they might be, that's possible. And also what are other root causes that could have contributed to it? So I would like to really educate employers. I would like to really educate claims adjusters. I would really like us to get to understand risk management in a different kind of capacity moving forward where yes, a lot of these things can be true, but more than one thing can be true at the same time. We can have an emotional reaction to something and also have objective fact that can help us drill down to the root cause to put in better technology, maybe some AI to work with us to help with some of the administrative processes 
to be able to be good people functioning as people for people. And that's where I think we've got to start shifting our perspective. And by jumping into all of this neurology that goes into it and understanding the physiological components of this, we've got to have people that can then effectively break it down. So when you're a baby adjuster, like I was at one point, I understand that the decisions that I make aren't just a decision on if Sean's going to get treatment for his shoulder or not, but what is this massive ripple effect that exists in the process? This is huge. I mean, I feel like this is, this has applications even beyond workers' compensation. Um, I totally agree. I'm really excited. We are finishing up a book that I absolutely want kind souls involved in. Actually, I'd been working on it behind the scenes of what are the emotions that injured workers feel when you're injured? And this isn't specific to injured workers, but my focus is workers' compensation. So I'm going to focus on that. So I've been injured two other times you feel absolutely destroyed when you can't show up for yourself. Um, and it's been one of those landscapes that, you know, identity, we, we tie our identity here in the United States, whether we want to say we do or not, I'll admit it. My identity heavily has been reliant on my position that I hold within a workplace mm-hmm. until I got laid off. I did not understand what a big issue that was. And so now when people ask where I work, I tell people I don't work. I just have multiple hobbies because I did a lot of work on who I am as a person. And a lot of that stems, I'm a, I'm a person who likes to be a single-handed game changer to make good things happen for people. So whether that's being an ambassador for kind souls, whether that's educating employers on work comp, whether that's teaching the future of tomorrow, designing these master's programs, you know, whatever that looks like, I want to do something that's going to make people's lives better tomorrow than it is today. And I believe I have the power to do so. And so when we start looking at how do we identify ourselves and what do we feel when we're not able to achieve whatever that title position, whatever is, we have little micro achievements that happen every day. When we remove that element, there's a lot of self-worth issues that come into play. So I wrote a book with some help with some of my amazing friends, and Kind Souls has been a part of it, so I'm very thankful for this, of what are the emotions an injured worker faces? And I'm writing this book from two lenses. One, if you're an injured person, hey, I see you, I hear you, you matter. Here's what you can do to help yourself. Then the secondary lens is if you're an employer or an adjuster, risk manager, safety, HR, how do you help people that are experiencing these feelings and these emotions? Because a lot of times there's embarrassment. Actually, I got this from one of my students last semester. I asked him if he would help me edit it. And he, the first thing he said, he starts reading it. And he said, I mean this nicely. My family owns a trucking company. The number one issue that we have when people injure themselves is that they are embarrassed. They are embarrassed that this has happened. They are embarrassed that their body did not work accordingly. They're Mm -hmm. embarrassed that they would need to come tell us this. And this is a vulnerability. And I loved, this is like a 22 year old kid coming to me with like, Hey lady, I see you, but here's something that you're missing. And I've loved it. So the people that have been contributing to this are great. But if we can get people like a cheat sheet of, okay, human behavior dictates this. If I am embarrassed and I don't feel that I'm in a psychologically safe space to be able to talk to people about things, I'm not going to be as open as to my responsibility in the process and what we could have done to make this whole situation better or to make sure it doesn't happen to Sean next. You know, there's just so many elements that go into this. So to be able to create, like, again, it's a written book for the moment, but put it maybe into an audible form and whatnot and be able to educate injured human beings 
right at the get-go. Like, hey, you might feel this way. Here are some ways that you can combat that. Here's how you can restore your own sense of agency and realize that you do have some control in a system designed to not give you any control. And then if you're like the employer or the adjuster and you see Claire's agitated, okay, here's some questions that we can ask. Here are some ways that you can help navigate that person through experiencing this. Because again, when we have an experience that exists, there's two things that happen. One, we have a raw emotion. And what we need to do is be able to freeze that raw emotion and understand it is okay to feel happy, sad, mad, embarrassed, frustrated, whatever it is, but freeze it for a second. Okay, why are you feeling that way? Let's drill down into what objectivity has occurred. Uh, I didn't get a call back from my adjuster. I've never heard from my boss. My payments were missed. My prescription was declined. There's a lot of elements that can contribute to whatever that raw emotion is. And so if we're able to acknowledge it, be like, it's okay that you feel this way. Now, what are we going to do to get you to move forward from that area? And that's where a lot of this beauty comes into just drilling into these concepts that we all know exist. If you've ever seen an emotions wheel, we know that you've got to get down to what is that core emotion. Anger tends to be a secondary emotion. There's usually something more tied to it, like shame, embarrassment, something along those lines. So if we can get to that and pull that apart, we're able to help somebody acknowledge those feelings and move on. The issue that we have if we don't do this is that your brain actually will physiologically change. I sat through an amazing presentation earlier this week on the damage that happens to PTSD patients that don't get treated. Your brain, your frontal cortex actually changes its structure. Yeah, like this is where, yep. yes, this is fascinating stuff. And here's the thing. I don't think this is rocket science to anybody that's listening today. We know this. A lot of times we just don't want to take our accountability to fix it on our own. And so that's where I want to try and draw some awareness into it's not your fault that these situations happened. It's not your fault that you feel this way. It is your fault if you choose to not acknowledge it. And it is your fault if you don't want to do something about it. And I think that that sits within every seat in workers' compensation probably every seat in an organization or any type of leadership. But again, my focus is work comp because I really want to help injured workers restore some sense of agency into their healing and recovery process, which is one of the reasons I love kind souls because we literally give everybody, here's all your resources. Yes, This is what is amazing about what we do here to try and help you. And again, there's no agenda except to help people. And I think in the time and the climate that we live right now, that's sometimes a, an afterthought because money, we profit over people on a regular basis. Yeah. There's so much to unpack there and so many questions I have. Um, first, I think I think your book should be mandatory reading for anybody who's going into claims, whatever role that they're in. The second is, I don't want to be cynical about it, but I feel like a claims adjuster could read the book, but if an organization's not aligned to implement the tools that are contained in that book, and I keep coming back to the word empathy because like all that stuff is like there's an element of empathy towards an injured individual. But if there aren't fundamental underlying processes, process changes within the work comp claims process, I don't know that you can achieve the goals that outlined. But I think, I mean, you have to start somewhere, right? Um, Agreed. So here's where I would caveat that. I 100% agree with that statement. I think you're right. I think you're absolutely correct. 
Here's what we're facing. Our insurance industry as a whole is going to lose 50% of the people currently working by 2028. You know what I say to that? Good. It's about time we have to rock this whole industry. We don't need those 50% of jobs. Hello. Like, I don't know what it's going to take for people to wake up to this. Most of those jobs need to evolve. And we look at tech and we look at AI. We need to take all the technology that we know up to this point and the AI, like I know Hartford's doing some amazing stuff with AI and claims processing right now. So I want to give Hartford a shout out on that. We should be able to rethink these mundane administrative processes to be able to use technology at our forefront and use AI to help us with all of those processes to be able to rethink what do we need in this future? I've joked that my next job isn't even born yet because of the evolution that we need in this space. So when we think about, and I'll go back to, let's use something that's easy, compliance. Every state has their own forms that need to be filed. Why are we not using technology to automate this? And I know some companies are. So I like, I worked for a company back in 2006 that had this already figured out. But a lot of organizations don't. They don't want to invest in the infrastructure. Okay, so here's your caveat. If we're going to lose 50% of the workforce, do you need to replace that? Mm. And if so, why have you not been innovative along the way? Because I, again, don't believe that all of those people need to be replaced. I think we work smarter, not harder. And we start to look at good. This is an opportunity for us to get better. What resources are currently available that we just might not have thought about using a technological investment? And I do understand this takes time and this takes money, but if we're going to go try and find people, and I want to put that in quotes, find people to come take these places, is that really the best use of our time, our talent, and our treasures that exist within this space? Or should we start to actually be thought leaders of how can we execute this so that we are using the people that are here in the best way possible? So when we go back to empathy, we need people to be good people. I think one of the greatest things that I like, my auto insurance is through Progressive. When I call Progressive, I get to talk to a human being. It's one of the things I love about it. It's why I stay with them. And, you know, you know, my daughter's 15. Here comes all of these claims that I'm sure are going to be coming. coming. Please don't cancel me, Progressive. I love you guys. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> and maybe my daughter's great at navigating risk. Who knows? We'll see what happens. But when I think about it from this landscape, the people element is so important. Why are we using people to fill out paper forms still? And I know this exists in companies. Yep. Why are you doing that? So you could take the investment into those positions that... Some of these people have been working for these organizations for a very long time. Let's let them retire. Let's let the workforce evolve and change. But then look at those positions. Are they truly needed in the capacity that they've been operating at? Or have we ineffectively evolved? And I think that's one of the things that hasn't really been vocalized yet. But we need to stop panicking and saying, oh, we've got this talent crisis. I don't think it's a crisis. I think it's an industry evolution that is forcing us to evolve, embrace technology because Gen Z and Gen P, the generation pandemic that is a subset of Generation Z, were born with technology. Most people in the Gen P dynamic have had an a f- Apple iPhone or sorry, not, not Apple. It could be any, any phone um, could have had that since like age five. 
And so if we're not understanding the technological advancements that are already prevalent in our ever-changing society, we are so far behind the eight ball. So now we're being forced to actually do something about it. So when we look at this, you know, talent crisis, again, I want to put that in quotation marks. I think this is one of the best times ever to embrace technology, evolve, stop being fearful and just try something new. Maybe it's not going to work perfectly, but at least it's going to be better than we were yesterday. And tomorrow can be better than it is today. And your model of, of this approach, I think, will be attractive to a younger generation in the workforce who have altruistic visions of wanting to help people. Like, I think when someone of college age or in high school thinks about a job in, in, in insurance, they think of being in a gloomy, barely lit room with paper and forms. Mm -hmm. And they're thinking about compliance and legal aspects of it. And I get that that has to happen and probably mundane processes, they're not thinking, oh my gosh, I could have a job in an industry where I get to be on the forefront of helping a human being in arguably their greatest time of need. And I don't think people look at insurance that way. I think they look at insurance as a, as a, a form-driven adversarial situation. And, and I agree I with you. Yours and changes that. that. Your, your model changes that whole thing. So a couple of things that we have learned, we just did some faculty development on Gen P and understanding the difference between Generation Z and Generation P. So I want to caveat this. So Gen P is the, the group of children or learners like under age 21 right now that have been severely impacted by the pandemic in terms of socialization, in terms of education, in terms of learning environment, family dynamics, you name it. Gen P is looking at stability in career placement, which is huge because that's a little bit different than what we were hearing from Gen Z, where Gen Z is like, we are going to, we want to be everywhere we want to be. We don't want to be at a desk. We want to be able to do all of this advocacy work. You know, there were some pretty heavy blanket terms that were grouped for this dynamic. And now we're seeing a shift where there's been so much change that this generation is looking for stability. So if you can couple stability with meaning and purpose in their positions, hello, welcome to the insurance industry. Why are we not capitalizing on this? We are able to try and build that in and that stability of a paycheck. They might be a little bit different than millennials. It's going to be interesting to see how this transitions. But if we know that on the forefront and we are learning about this right now as everything continues to evolve and develop as we are moving into this new area of life, we need to be focusing on these. And so when we say, you know, the depiction that people have of our industry is exactly how you describe it. Paper, dim lit cubicles, ugh. Okay, whose fault is that though? This is where we go back to like what I said at the beginning of the podcast. How do we make people self-accountable? How do we describe our positions? How do we describe our jobs? I like to describe claims adjusters as single-handed game changers who can change the trajectory of somebody's life every time they pick up the phone, make a decision in our claim note very different than I process claims through a checkbox mentality. You know, like there's just different words. And I don't know that we give a lot of, we don't give a lot of emphasis to the words that we use. And I just wrote a series of this for workerscompensation.com on compassionate leadership and communication and not just communication, the art of conversation. So as we look at all these dynamics that are going to evolve, so we've got 50% of the workforce exiting from the insurance industry by 2028, 
Then we start to look at this newer generation that is now entering the workforce. You've got Gen Z, Gen P, and you still have millennials, or I'm a geriatric millennial, as my daughter likes to remind me, which is interesting as well. We think about the communication elements because you still have people that are working. Some of the traditionalists had to come back into the workforce. So we are looking at multiple different types of communication preferences. So how do we hit all of them and still remember that people want to be seen, heard, acknowledged, and valued, especially when they've been injured, when they've been displaced from work, when some unforeseen circumstance has happened to them? And what are going to be those effective means to be able to communicate? And this is where we start to look at different multitudes and why we need to embrace tech. We need to embrace AI from reminders and consistency to reach out to your employees when they're off work up to sending a card that is heartfelt and meaningful. Don't know what to say. Chat GPT can help a lot. Just going to pause there for a second. <laughs> like there's so many tools available. You just have to be smart at using them and making sure that you adjust things to look genuine or to add your own flavor or to add your own flair. You know, personal branding is such a huge thing right now that we talk about because people didn't understand their power of influence. If you don't believe you have a personal brand, do me a favor right now, stop what you're doing while you're listening to Sean and I and Google yourself. Because if you don't define your personal brand, Google will for you very yeah. easily. And then it's up to you to fix whatever that looks like, says, et cetera. And it's just interesting when we start to tie all of these elements around, again, at the whole part of everything that we do, it's about trying to make people's lives better from the landscape that we sit in. And I think there's so much power behind the meaning and the purpose that exists within this. And then how do you get people excited about it? And how do we take that harness this exciting energy and go inspire others to also do the same thing because each of us have that ability to do that, whether it's walking down the hallway and smiling at someone else. Like smiles are such a huge emphasis into making somebody's day better. You don't even understand how you can change somebody's day or giving somebody a compliment or just noticing something different about someone and making a comment about it. Like we can just have this massive ripple effect through such small, tiny interactions. And I think that we heavily focus on all the big stuff when it's really the little things done well over time that produce the greatest results of all. Oh my gosh, you're the most articulate person in our industry. And you're <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting here beaming, like just basking in what you're saying, because all of these things are things that I've thought for years, but I haven't been able to fully articulate them. So I appreciate you being a voice for kind souls and for an entire industry who wants to see a redirection to this to this area and i'm just i'm so thankful um that you're here and that we we have your voice um to do this i'm just i'm i'm blown away by all this because i think we need to sit down and have like a three-hour conversation um about this stuff um, got it. I geek out on this. This is what it keeps me. It keeps me up at night. It's what wakes me up in the morning. It's what adds the fire to my passion. And I think what's been even greater is going into the academic space where I'm surrounded. I love, so I'm a giant nerd. If you've met me, I can geek out on probably any topic, but now I get to be surrounded by others and they drive me to be better than I was the day before. And even just in talking to my friend yesterday, who is in our college of pharmacy, and I was telling her about what I had been doing some research on. And she instantly is like, well, come audit this class. And I, you can see about how the drug interactions based on a heck of a lot of other factors are going to are going to have 
different exchanges in our body chemistry. And I'm like, I would love to, oh my gosh, I want to do this. And it's just fun to be surrounded by people that are so passionate about their topics. And then I feel like it's my job to come back to the work comp industry and be like, Hey, I love you guys. I want us to continue to get better. I want us to continue to evolve and develop. And here's what I've learned from the outside. And this is how I want to make it applicable to any position of anywhere that you sit in this space. It matters. It matters so heavily. And so that is where I guess that's kind of my superpower. You've helped. It is a superpower. (laughs) And you've helped. You've helped me. And I know countless others think about mental health in the industrial space in a more nuanced way. And I think it's been helpful to have an entity, a nonprofit like Kind Souls out there that fills a gap between, unfortunately, this sort of duality that I think we think of mental health and either like psychopharmacology or you're lying about it, get over it. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and it's like, it's awful to think about it in those types of terms, but kind souls fills a gap that allows for addressing psychological issues that are never or, or at least to my knowledge, rarely touched in workers' compensation. Like you brought up like mm-hmm. shame and embarrassment and real feelings and emotions that someone's going through where they don't have an outlet. They're not going to call their adjuster up. Maybe they do in some certain limited. Oh, instances. and you know, they're not going to go talk to HR, to all my HR no. friends out there. I love you. I know you guys are trying to earn your seats at the table and you're trying to make things better for your employees. Not one person I know wants to come talk to you about the shame that they feel for an injury right. that they sustained or contributed to. I mean, if anyone's seen The Office, Toby doesn't, like, I'm not going to come pour my heart out to Toby, but we'll try. We'll try. But again, I think there's an evolution happening in that space as well. And it's very exciting to see how people are trying to change that space too. And we work hand in hand with them. And so again, these are all employee benefits and I would consider workers' compensation one too. Something that I've been really heavily focused on educating employers with this past year and I will continue to do so stems from my work as the chief risk officer when I was over at Emory, where why do we not talk about work comp until after it's happened? Mm -hmm. So I challenge any of our employers out there. And even if you are an employer that is an employer of adjusters, like. If something happens, this is what we need to start looking at open enrollment and insurance. Like if something happens, here are all the benefits that you get. If it happens at work, here's where you go. If it happens, if it happens outside of work, here's where you go. And here are all the benefit offerings because they are benefit offerings. Just work comp is mandated by state, but it's still, we are going to take care of you. If it happens at work, here's what we do. If it happens on your own time, here's what we do. But either way, we as your employer are going to take care of you. Here's what it looks like. And if we would start talking about that so it's mainstream, it could be as simple as, all right, you know what? We offer EAP, okay? And we offer wellness benefits. And okay, here's the pharmacy that we partner with for our pharmacy benefits manager. Well, why aren't we doing the same thing on comp? If you can direct medical care, hey, here's who we prefer that we think is good. Um, 
you know, and I know not all states can do that. So again, mm. but you can always soft channel. Come on, people, we know better than that. But here's also, here's our pharmacy benefits manager. Here's a copy of the first fill card in case something happens. Here's a copy of a first report of injury in case something happens. Here's who we report this stuff to. And talking about it where it becomes normal, plain language. So we're talking about the power of words. We tend to say workers' compensation with such haste. We Mm. treat those injured humans with like lepers, and we consider this space a red herring for the most part. I mean, when we look at the whole insurance space, most people aren't talking about workers' compensation. So that's fine. We'll be here. We'll embrace it. But again, how do we communicate this so that it becomes normal language and that leaders of people, if you are a leader of people, you should understand workers' compensation because they are your people. They are your, I know people are hating this term now, they're your work family, but they're the people you chose to be working for you. And I know we inherit teams sometimes, but if they're still working for you and you haven't performance managed them out, they're still your people. So they are your people that you have chosen to to collectively work towards a common goal, a vision, a mission through your values. It is your job to help take care of them and to help in instill the sense of belonging that they matter. And so this is where we look at how do we take care of our people? How do we articulate this in a way that people understand what they qualify for? It's just, I don't understand why we've just made it so adversarial, adversarial yes. over time when it doesn't need to be. And it all stems from fear and fear of the unknown. Well, I'd like to challenge fear this year and call it face everything and rise. You're not in this alone. If you get injured, we have a ridiculous amount of people and resources that are here to help you. We're going to face it together and we're going to find a way to help you rise. So instead of it being fear of the unknown, we're going to talk about it as facing this together and finding a way to rise. I'm fully bought into everything you say. I want to play devil's advocate for a moment and there's going to be haters who are bottom line driven and they want to say like why would i employ this type of model in my organization when all i really care about is outcomes and results i mean my argument you're going to have a way more articulate argument than than me but my argument would be it is going to prove outcomes and results and affect the bottom line if you treat people like human beings. And it's going to make for a much more enjoyable and rewarding experience on on your claims team side when they help people. I, I just maybe naively think that that's just human nature. Like we want to help each other. But I know there's going to be people who are resistant because it's a new type of model. And I know you've been preaching it for a long time, but it's still going to be there. So what do you tell those people so we can redirect everyone to that to that road it's just phenomenal to me that people don't understand that by doing the right thing <laughs> and mitigating things on the forefront like i'm talking about the first 30 minutes of an injury the first 48 hours of a claim what we do during those time periods first 30 minutes is very heavily based on what are we doing as an organization and with that direct line leader first 48 hours is okay now we've started to get people involved we're getting an insurance company or a third-party administrator involved we now have medical care involved do we have a nurse do we have ancillary services involved this is where the big heavy focal point comes on how you're going to set the tone for the claim for the injury and the recovery process 
a lot of the other things I talk about are done way before an injury ever occurs. Again, this is where it came from risk management and looking at the safety and all that fun stuff that exists there. It costs nothing to treat people with respect. If you are not prepared, you're behind. If you don't know what should be happening on the front end, like for example, what should happen after someone is injured? Number one, we reassure the person that they're going to be okay. That costs nothing to use that any type of verbiage around that that says, hey, okay, this has happened. Here's what we're going to do. We got you. But we've got to be able to train people to think on their feet to be able to say those type of things. I was in New York City with my husband and we were walking and this girl tripped and fell and split her chin right open and like right in front of us, just blood everywhere. And I, I, we stopped a woman on the street, got some band-aids, held her chin. I'm like, you're going to be okay. Here's what I need you to do right now. I need you to not worry. We are going to get you to the ER. I need you to take some deep breaths for me. Who do we need to call for you? I need you to just apply pressure here. Does anyone have some water? And we have to remind people you're going to be okay. This has happened. This is going to suck. It might hurt a little bit, but there's a community of people at any time. Like we're in the middle of New York City. Like, come on. Like you can do this in your own company for your own people. Now, granted, we took care of her. She was great. Everything worked out well. She's got a little scar underneath her chin, but fantastic woman. But these are the things that are so innate that we don't think about. Like I was working with a nonprofit who had a woman who got bit by a horse and the supervisor just asked her to take herself to the hospital. Like in those moments, nobody sat her down. Nobody calmed her down. Nobody gave her some water. Give give the injured worker some water to just help hydrate, help like just kind of get people into a mood set. First of all, we're all chronically dehydrated, but this is an easy way to be to execute care, compassion, and concern right away. And again, reassuring people like, hey, we got you. You're going to be okay. Now, again, devil's advocate, maybe it's terrible. Maybe it's a bad injury. But in that moment, our goal is to help get their mindset into a, okay, I'm going to be safe. And that is like our biggest thing. Something's already happened now. But now what are we going to do to continue to reinforce that this person is going to be safe? We're going to take care of you from a financial perspective because you're going to be losing time from work. One of the other things that I just want to caveat, I want to put an asterisk to that. What people fail to realize is that when injured workers are being paid workers' compensation, yes, it is tax-free, they still have to pay their insurance premiums. They are not being taken out. Mm -hmm. So I want to highlight that because people talk about how this is such a money-making opportunity. I need you to check your privilege on that one and actually go through and understand the things that are not taken out of an injured worker's work comp paycheck that they still have to pay back to their employer. Yeah. So again, there's a little asterisk there. But again, we're going back to that first 30 minutes. Have we reassured the person? Have we gotten them some water? Are we making sure that they're safe? And then what do we do from that next landscape? We need to get them into their, you know, the ambulance. We need to get to, to the doctor. Is somebody going with them? Again, we're trying to reemphasize that somebody is safe. Does that cost money? Okay, you're going to have the time away from work from that leader and that injured worker. But again, these are all really small details that in the aggregate of the day, and we're looking again at time, talent, treasures, these little tiny things are going to be making the biggest financial impact on how somebody heals in their recovery process. If we keep that leader engaged with, let's say, the woman that got bit by the horse, and we're able to have that leader go with her to the doctor, we see what's going to happen. And then that leader follows up the next day. Hey, Susan, how you doing? Hope you're doing okay. So sorry that incident happened. 
this is what, you know, I just want to make sure that you're okay. I'm going to check in with you again tomorrow. And we keep those lines of communication open so that there's that ongoing engagement. We can get Susan back to work quicker because Susan feels like she was taken care of in the process. Like when we start to look at where these disconnects a lie, it gets expensive when we drop the ball. We do not take accountability. We don't try and make the situation better. And then we demonize the people that are involved. Adjusters get demonized all the time when employers are failing to send wages over timely and the adjuster can't issue the check, but the adjuster gets demonized like the insurance company is not helping. Okay, it's not the insurance company. The insurance company actually wants to pay you. Your HR or payroll department is not sending us the stuff, but we don't throw each other under the bus. We just kind of take it and move on. And this is where when we start looking at why is this model expensive? You can't afford not to go this route. And it's fun when I go talk to employers. I'm like, here are the objectives you should put for yourself as a risk manager, safety, HR, work comp person. Here are the objectives you should go tell your CEO and CFO you can execute and implement by doing this. We know that if, an, if a leader stays actively involved, on average, we can get people back to work three weeks faster. Love it. Three weeks faster. We know this stuff. We've been tracking data forever. And now I know most companies won't share this stuff with one another because you know it's all proprietary. But at the end of the day, again, being a good human this all goes back to us being in kindergarten and me saying, Hey, Sean, do you want to come play with me in the sandbox? Mm. And starting from there of just seeing you're a human, I'm a human, let's go play together like kids do and doing the same thing. But when people are in a time of crisis and we just stay there with like, Hey, you're going to be okay. You got this. Okay. If you have a bone protruding out of your leg, I need you to keep your eyes focused on me. We are going to take care of you. You're going to be okay. This might suck for the next little bit, but we acknowledge that and we're going to do whatever we can to keep you comfortable until we can get you fixed. And again, a lot of these things all start with before the injury, within that first 30 minutes and within those first two days. Then we could look at like what happens during the next two weeks, but I know we're not going down that road right now. And so if you're able to execute these small, small things well, this is where you start to see those financial return on investments by investing in your people on this front end. I think if we as an indus workers' compensation industry implemented a quarter of the things that you've articulated so wonderfully, I think we would be in so much of a better place. I think if we, as a society, implemented them, <laughs> that would be a game changer. I just keep, I, I know we're talking about workers' compensation, but I feel like this is, this is bigger. I mean, it, it can translate into other areas of industry and organizations and even our political system. And we don't have time <laughs> to talk about all that, but I want to sincerely thank you, Dr. Claire, for coming on. This has been such an incredible conversation for me, uh, and and we appreciate your time and everything you do as an ambassador for Kind Souls Foundation. What a first episode. I appreciate it so very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been an honor to be here. I am truly privileged to be an ambassador for Kind Souls and helping get the word out about what an amazing program we offer here. This was our first podcast episode of Compassion, a Kind Souls Foundation podcast. Thank you so very much. Mm -hmm.